Gracious Heavenly Father, as we approach you today in song, in prayer, in word, in spirit, as individuals, as families, and as a body, I pray that indeed we are reminded constantly that you are good and above all things, all trials and tribulations of this world, and that our souls should believe, not just know, but truly believe that things are well in your kingdom. This doesn't mean we don't have anxiety. It doesn't mean that there are things in this world that we shouldn't be concerned about, but yet we trust in your overarching sovereignty above anything and everything in this world, and that with our lives, with our hearts, and with everything that does give us anxiety and pause, that we can trust you and believe in you and face each day knowing that it is well with our soul. I pray that these words from your scripture convict, enlighten, encourage, and spur us on evermore to be the people that we ought to be in you. In Jesus' name we pray and lift these things up to you. Amen. As you know, we have been... Uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount, not just in Bible class, which has been good, but also the last couple of weeks in the Sunday morning sermon. We are finally at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and I am both uh, relieved and sad. Sad because there is so much there that is so dense and so important, and also relieved because there is so much there, and it is there's so dense and so important. Uh, not that I'm trying to scamper out of things, but the Sermon on the Mount is arguably some of the most dense scripture there is. Um, and I have purposely, as I've said before, chosen a very high uh, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 foot view on things, not so much as to exegete, means to draw out the meaning of each individual verse or concept, but yet, in order to give us the big flow, the big picture of not only Matthew, but how the Sermon on the Mount fits into the rest of the book. We begin today with chapter 8, which is a perfect example of how not only does Matthew draw from what came, but also today begins an arc, and I'm going to refer back to it several times in the next month or so. It begins an arc that isn't really finished, quote-unquote, all the way until chapter 12. I say this, not that I'm going to explain it very well today, but I want you to be looking for it, because Matthew has an incredible chronology and reasoning behind how he put his book in order. Now, if that's a strange statement to you, I just want to review quickly that most of the Gospels are not chronological. Luke is arguably the most chronological. John's probably the least. Um, but Matthew is arranging his book not just in day-to-day, -day, Jesus did this, then did this, then did this, but he is arranging his book out of Jesus' life in order to tell us something on purpose. So therefore, whenever something is next to something in the Scripture, whenever one story follows the other, it's on purpose. And it does connect. And it does answer a big singular question that Matthew was trying to teach his audience, namely the Jews, but obviously everyone who was reading it, is that if Jesus is king, or rather since Jesus is king, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? And what does it mean to be kingdom citizens of the Messiah? We're going to delve right into it today, and we begin as Peter read with a very well-known parable that presents a very well 
uh, obvious contrast. We're familiar with contrast. It's, you know, don't do this or that. Instead, do this or that. Contrasts are all over the Bible. And this is arguably one of the most striking ones. And there's a reason that Matthew ends the Sermon on the Mount with a contrast such as this. Let's review and then we'll go on and um, continue on. He says, Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as one of the scribes. I was commenting to Thomas, actually, when it was playing. Now, obviously, this is a very well-known uh, children's song, one that's really fun, and that... Uh, I wish, you know, that when it was playing, I wish we would have taken it seriously and all, we all would have fallen down when it was appropriate, but, you know, that's, that's a wish that I'll keep wishing, probably. The thing is, and I don't want to sour the song, but this is probably one of the worst parables, worst section of Scripture to make a very fun, jovial kid song out of. Because it's serious. Look at what he says. Everyone who then hears these words of mine, stop right there for a minute. Jesus is reaffirming at the end of this sermon, this isn't just an ethical teaching. This isn't just a good idea. These are words, teachings of mine. Me, Jesus, Messiah. These are serious things. And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now there is history and biblical history galore out of this. Wise men, historically, all throughout the Bible, are ones who are... Um, honored and revered ones who are generally used by God in order to do God's will. The fact that Jesus says he's like a wise man, Jews would have had a history of fools and wise men in the Old Testament. Wise men were exonerated and, and exalted and, and, and usually did well. Fools obviously weren't. Even the metaphor of the rock, while we don't want to read too much into this, it's a fairly plain spoken parable. The rock has implications all the way back to Genesis. Rocks are always firm. They withstand. They're solid. We understand the rock metaphor. And he expounds upon it here. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. Storms of life. Except this isn't just a storm of life, which is a trial or something that is temporary. The context of the parable says that these kind of storms are representative of God's ultimate judgment. Or, if you want to look at it the other way, the judgment which we ultimately bring upon ourselves, whether or not we follow God or not. Whether or not we follow God. Yeah, that's right. Especially in the second half of the parable, the foolish man who built his house on the sand, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of them. The words here speak of destruction. This is talking about the ultimate result at the ultimate end of someone. Whether or not they followed, listened, heard these words of Jesus and did something about them, not only did something about them, but did something which was appropriate about them. This parable is a very serious one to end on because Jesus is in essence making the claim that everything I just talked about to you has eternal 
ramifications, which obviously we're familiar with that, but I think that's what astonished the crowd because he's not just saying, hey, this is a good idea, hey, this is a teaching, hey, this is a good way to live your life. He is saying, be wise or you will be a fool. Build on the rock or build on the sand, your choice, either way, it will affect you, not just the here and now, but ultimately. This is serious stuff. And Jesus has the authority to teach. The question we want to ask here, in addition to how this one got turned into a very jovial kid song, the question we want to ask here is this, very simple question. What's the point of the whole sermon on the mount? If this is where Jesus ends, what's the point of the whole sermon on the mount? I've made the point before that it's not just Jesus teaching ethical teaching. Here's a good idea. You ought to do this. It's not just Jesus teaching commandment as in law, as in you must do this or else. There's an element of that, in a sense, but it's not Jesus laying out the do's and don'ts. So what is it? What's the point of the whole Sermon on the Mount? There's a couple you can argue, but the one I'm going to focus on today is this. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is what you do from what you believe. And even we started out there with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not all of these are explicit actions, but the Beatitudes even themselves combine what you believe and therefore how you act, what you do based on what you believe. Now, we can put a word to this. Doing what? obvious thing would be what conforms to God's will as Jesus teaches. This is the narrow gate we were talking about the other week. Not the ultimate narrow gate, but the narrow gate of saying this is what kingdom citizenship, this is what discipleship, this is what following me looks like, doing things according to God's will as Jesus teaches. Now here's the interesting thing. If you want to look at and start connecting a few things here. There's actually another word for this very thing. We can talk about doing righteousness. Now, I've talked about righteousness before in that it's about right relationship. And so one may ask, well, if it's about right relationship, how can simply doing what God says also help with relationship? We don't do a very good job of sometimes combining obedience and relationship. But there's a very obvious one in front of us that most of us know about, and if we don't, you can still learn from it, even if it doesn't apply directly to you. And that's the whole concept of marriage. Whenever you're married, whenever you're in a relationship... Whenever you're in a relationship at all, marriage is an obvious one, but this applies to every relationship. A relationship with your family, with your friends, with your mother, with your sister. There is a certain way to act. Not because your spouse or that person says, this is how you're going to act, otherwise you know, we're going to have problems. Well, sometimes that may happen, but if that's happening to you, come see me because that's not good. There's a certain way to act in that relationship 
which benefits that relationship. There's a certain way to act in that relationship which deepens it. There's a certain way to act in that relationship which is honoring to the other person, honoring to the relationship, honoring to you in the relationship. And as we know, there's a certain act which is not. Marriage is like that. Marriage is like doesn't mean that you have to change everything who you are for the other person, but it does mean that there are ways you will act that will conform to the covenant that you have entered to the exclusion of other things. What does it do whenever you act in the right way in your marriage? It creates right and better relationship. You see how those work? We get it when it comes to relationships. I don't know why it's so hard sometimes to understand it with God. Because while He's God... It's about relationship. Are we acting in such a way? Are we doing life in such a way that conforms to God's will, God's will, not just to receive reward, that's legalism, not just because God said so, well, that's not a bad reason to start out with, not just because it's a right thing to do, it's not just ethics, but are we acting in such a way that conforms to God's will in order to honor, grow closer to, conform to the relationship that we have to God, to Christ, as citizens of his kingdom? That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Not just ethics, not just do this or else, but the picture of what it means to act and do righteousness in life. Towards God and to each other. That's actually a question. Maybe that's a good one to ask. I even started off the service by saying, maybe reflect a little bit. Maybe that's a question you want to ask ourselves. We have to ask ourselves this week is that how am I acting righteously, not just towards God and towards Christ, but to my spouse, to my friends, to my family? to my church? Am I acting in such ways that I actually add to the right relationships of those around me? It's a good question to ask. It might be a scary question to ask. It's a good question. With that, as I said before, what comes before and what comes after, particularly in Matthew, is very important. He goes on to say, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as testimony to them. We've talked about this many times in church, and I'm not going to get into all the details because I want to connect it with what's next, because it's important. But obviously, there are some very big things here. Leprosy was a serious thing. It was a very contagious thing, and the Levitical law commanded a lot of things when it came to lepers. They were to live outside the camp. If anyone were to come close to them, they were to actually call out, Unclean! Unclean! So that way no one would come too close. And if anyone saw them in a crowd, they were to yell out, Unclean! Unclean! In order to, ideally, protect the rest of the population, although it became perverted into not caring at all about those who are in most need. Something Jesus would address here and otherwise. He came to him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched his hand 
and touch the man. There are, <laughs> sorry, there are commentaries which debate, maybe Josh, you've read them and such, about whether Jesus healed the man before he uh, touched him because technically he would be breaking the law if he was touching a leper. If he touched him afterwards, I think that misses the point. The point is, when is the last time this leper had someone touch him at all? Jesus not only does, but Jesus invites you to close relationship. He says, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leper. Jesus said, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. You know, there's actually a whole chapter in Leviticus, Leviticus 14, which talked about a priest verifying that there is a healed leper and what to do and how to proclaim to society so that they could rejoin society. Most likely this was dusty on the shelf and not used much. I would have liked to have been the priest that comes in and says, hey, can you, aren't you? Oh, <laughs> he gets to read from the Leviticus book that he doesn't get to. Keep in mind the bigger story here I want to talk about the next two stories and bring them all together. A man with leprosy, uncleanliness and disease, comes to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. Next pericope, or passage. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word. And my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. A couple of things to bring out from this that a centurion under the Roman Empire was almost undoubtedly a Gentile. Not a Jew, although we believe that his servant was most likely Jewish. Look at what he says. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You see, the centurion is all too aware of several things. He's all too aware of the fact that Jews and Gentiles were not to mix. And especially to have a Jew come into the house of a Gentile was a big no-no. Peter would deal with this later in Acts. And he would do well, and then he wouldn't do well, and such is life. But he recognizes the fact that Jesus, as Matthew just said, keep in mind, has authority and acts and speaks and teaches and lives as one who isn't just teaching like I am. This is what this says. Here's a teaching for you to consider. But teaching was one that has the authority behind the words. The centurion recognizes that and asks something because of it. And Jesus mentions something which any Pharisee in the room or in the mountain would have riled at because he is addressing the fact that there are many in Israel who think that they would belong at Abraham's table, who would be a shoe-in for the kingdom of heaven, except they will find themselves in the unexpected place, while those that they never expected to have a shot 
at being at the Messiah's table will be the first ones there. Keep that in mind as we continue on with the last little bit of Scripture that we're looking at today. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. I think it's worth pointing out that that note from the Old Testament is actually from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And there's much in there we could go into. But this is fairly explanatory as far as what it says. But the question I want to ask you is how does this connect with everything before it? Because I think it does. Real quickly, we have Jesus healing a leper. We have a centurion's faith. And we have Jesus healing many, including Peter's mother-in-law. Not just... What does this particular set of texts say? And then what does this particular set of texts say? What does this ark tell us? What does it mean that Matthew put these stories, these events, these teachings, these writings, directly after the Sermon on the Mount? There's a couple of ways we could approach this. and I couldn't decide between three of them, so I'm presenting you all three. I think one of the first things we say is looking at just the chronology and looking at the examples and looking at the reactions of people. Jesus just finished a sermon to which he had authority that challenged the status quo, as it were, that reinvented people's perceptions about the kingdom, that, that challenged people's expectations, that challenged you to say it's not just about knowing, it's not just about, about doing something particular, it's about blending the two, it's about believing and doing and becoming someone different. And so... From that, I think Matthew very obviously gives us some examples of people's response to the sermon. Did you notice that the leper came, sought out Jesus, came into the city, came into the camp, came into the midst of people, which he wasn't supposed to do. But the leper sought out and came to Jesus in order to seek relief. The centurion asked in a faith which he had no right to have not just idly but culturally ethnically racially as well as at this point Jesus hasn't done much but the centurion recognized something and asked in a faith which he was not expected to have and many received Christ's blessings by being near to him by probably doing exactly what the leper and centurion did, coming and seeking Jesus out and asking in faith, can you heal me? Can you do this? I believe in you, Lord. The first thing we can see is we see an exact example of what the Sermon on the Mount ought to do to people. It ought to spur people on to come and seek Jesus, to ask for salvation and eternal life in faith and in turn receive the blessings that Christ only can give. But there's more. <laughs> what is that Billy Mazel thing? But wait, there's more. Always more. It's just a question of what to talk about in a 35-minute sermon. It's the, it's the hard part. 
The second thing I think is a very valid approach is the leper. Is the law being fulfilled in faith in front of our eyes? There are several instances of how the law legally was being broken here. The leper was not supposed to be in the camp. No one was supposed to touch a leper. But yet the law is not something which would design to simply be obeyed or not. The law was something which is based on something bigger. The law was meant to still draw people to God. And Christ comes to say, fulfill the law. The law does not mean, uh, fulfill does not mean to abolish or destroy. It means to make completely full. And Christ is able to completely fulfill the law. Why was the leper supposed to stay outside the camp? Because he was contagious. He had a disease. Why was no one supposed to touch him? Well, because he was, he was supposed to, he didn't want to um, infect everyone around. Everyone him. He didn't want to infect everyone in the city around him. Except that the Messiah came to fulfill the law. That's true. Except when someone can heal you. The same goes for our sin. I'll get to that in just a minute. The centurion. Then if the law is fulfilled, is a picture of the faith that is fulfilled. And the fact that, yes, even a Gentile could cross barriers and cross societal lines in faith to come to the Messiah, a prophecy of what was to come in the present, which is arguably all, a lot of what Christ is. A prophecy of the eternally fulfilled kingdom in the here and now. And indeed, everyone who comes around Jesus, everyone who comes close to Him, everyone who bears an infirmity or a sickness is healed. The reason I talked about before that, so, that the law that with the leper is analogous to our sin is because all through the Old Testament, Isaiah in particular, he connects disease and infirmity to sin. Not just as metaphor, but also as some direct correlations. These are examples of someone overcoming through the grace and faith of the Messiah. Overcoming the strict legalistic interpretation of the law to fulfill a greater purpose. Someone who, even though they're not supposed to, sees something worth believing in and steps out in it. And then shows us the benefit what happens when there are many people who come in faith, healing, redemption, health, and eternal life. There's one more I'll throw at you this morning. Gently lob at you this morning. <laughs> and this is my favorite one because it connects to kingdom. The leper represents a kingdom seeker Someone who sees the image of the kingdom. Someone who sees the description of the kingdom citizen that Jesus lays out and says, I want that. Side note. <laughs> do, you mind a, do you mind a side note? Of course you don't. In Acts 8, <laughs> in Acts 8, whenever the eunuch when is reading his Bible, he goes, to, he goes to the temple. He's not getting anywhere near the temple. He buys a Bible. He buys Isaiah, basically a scroll of Isaiah. And Philip appears... Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone explains it to me? And Jesus, uh, Philip, from that part of Scripture, from Isaiah, we think I even Isaiah 53, explains Jesus to him. What is the eunuch's response? He doesn't say, well, do I have to do that? 
He doesn't say, well, do I have to be baptized? He doesn't say, well, do I have to do this? And He says, there's water. Is there anything that prevents me from getting what you have? He's saying, I want that. Can I have it? And Philip goes, yes! That's the kind of response that... That's the kind of response that Jesus ought to invoke through His followers. Not people arguing about, what well, do I have to do that? Do I have to do that? I don't want to do that. But people seeing the kingdom of God in the church and the people and saying, I want that. Can I have it too? Please, can I have it? What would happen if the world out there saw us and went, that's what's missing? Kingdom seekers are one who sees what Jesus is presenting and says, I want that. And I will do whatever it takes to get it. The centurion is another example of someone who breaks barriers in order to be part of the kingdom because the kingdom knows no barrier. Yeah, I'll meddle for a second. How many barriers do we put up consciously or unconsciously for people to see the kingdom of God. And I'm not just talking about walls. I'm talking about wielding Scripture in a way that shuts people down before they ever get a chance to see who Jesus is. I'm talking about treating people in such a way that church becomes a place to avoid when there's stress and anxiety in their life instead of a place to come to to be full? What barriers do we insist upon that Jesus is going, No, guys! And finally, healing is what kingdom citizenship looks like. Those who draw closer to Jesus are healed. Those who draw closer to Jesus and are around Him are redeemed. In this case, physically. But we know for us, mentally, spiritually, redeemed with eternal life, redeemed with the quality of life in the here and now that nothing in this world can overcome. There's a story about a woman who was getting a little bit of advanced age, and uh, do, and she felt as if she needed something in her life to keep her mind a bit sharper. And so she called her daughter once and said, "You know, daughter, what should I do?" And her daughter suggested, "How about you start doing jigsaw puzzles? And not only then can you challenge your mind and 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 have some fun, but then you can put a wonderful, beautiful picture." on your wall when you finish them and remind you of, yes, I did that. And the mom says, you know what, that's, that's a good idea. And I, I think that will help and I, I think I will like that. A couple weeks goes by, comes by, and um, she walks in and immediately one of the first things she sees is three or four beautiful puzzle pictures on the far wall. And she goes, mom, they look great. Congratulations. And, and she goes, oh, it was nothing. And they walk in and as the daughter walks by the picture, she notices something interesting. She notices that they're actually not uh, the puzzle pieces, but her mom had just cut out the front pictures. 
and put them on the wall. And she goes, Mom, what'd you do that for? And she says, Well, they're hard. And plus, this is easy. Pictures, and it's like, Okay. What the mom was forgetting is that it's not always the result which matters most, but the process and journey in getting there, which is oftentimes of the most benefit. What I want to challenge us today with that I think Matthew is challenging us from the sermon and seeing these people of faith and their actions in accordance with the sermon is that it's easy sometimes for us to recognize that we need something. It's also easy for us to see a goal and say, yes, that's what I want. But many of us want to skip the journey to get the reward, to arrive in the kingdom without the journey of combining belief and doing in submission with God's will. It's hard. <laughs> We'd much rather have the picture up on the wall of our arrived, redeemed self. But yet what the Sermon on the Mount teaches us is that how to arrive there is only done by taking the things within the sermon seriously and acting them out each and every day. Yes, sometimes painfully, sometimes not as ably as we would want, but to undertake the journey and putting together one piece at a time. Did you notice that at least the leper and the centurion are both people who exemplify the Beatitudes? People who are poor in spirit. People who are mourning. People who are meek. People who hunger and thirst for things we may right. Who are merciful, pure in heart. Those who have been persecuted. They are the ones that Matthew talks about as having received the kingdom of God. As we move forward in the text, I pray that we keep as a foundation this tension in the fact that it is not about just what we know, but what we do. And not just what we do, but about what we know. Combining them in order to crucify ourselves on the cross that Jesus may shine through us. Combining equally, and most importantly, not just knowing, but doing and acting in such a way that conforms to the righteousness of God. They have no other reason why we know that's what Christ did. It wasn't enough for him to know that he could do it. And it wasn't just enough for him to give us something we could know in order to save us. But out of the knowledge of sin and death and what it would take to save creation, Christ did. Christ died. And as Christ rose from both of those, so we too follow in his steps. If we are wise, and build on the rock of Christ every day.